Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Monday, May 24th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we have a very special episode today. We are going to do one of our adequately informed deep dives. So we're going to have a very directed conversation specifically to address what is currently going on in the region shared by Israel and Palestine. So again, we are going to try to draw sources from a number of different angles. And on this topic, believe me, a ton of angles exist from which to draw. So we're going to do our best to stay level-headed while we deal with a very charged topic. Hopefully, offer some clarity to our listeners, keep everybody adequately informed. Yeah. Um this is hopefully an exercise hopefully Evan and I are adequately informed to be able to talk about this in order to adequately inform you the listener of what's going on but as we are alluding to here this this is a difficult subject <laughs> yeah. and um we are and a vast are, subject. There is so yeah. much out here on this. We we can't possibly give you guys everything, but hopefully this will be a starting off point, a a node from which we can build our own independent research and come to some independent conclusions here. Yeah, if if we haven't been on the ivory tower, we especially are not on the ivory tower on this one. <laughs> We're in the cardboard dungeon on this one. Yeah, yeah. Our views are not sacrosanct. And we understand that um, very much, especially with this topic, that people of good faith can look at the same things and come to very different conclusions. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I guess just an overview of what this is before we like go into the history of how we got here. Um, Israel and Palestine are two nations that Well, Palestine are, is not a nation. That's well, critical here. Kind, well, <laughs> it's a nation of people. It's not a state. Yeah, yeah it's not a, a state. That's the better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So they are two nations of people essentially vying for the same area of land in uh, that includes Jerusalem and the lands around it um, that are kind of the biblical lands. Um, and they both lay claim to this land. Um, Palestinians being the people who have, were there um, pre 1900 and Israel who are, which is a state mostly made up of Jewish people, you know, in its charter as a state is, you know, calls it the state of the Jews. And it is, they also lay claim to this land as their ancestral home and the place for all Jewish people. So it is a, a, a section of land that is occupied by two, two uh, 
you know, tribes of people who both have what is seen as legitimate claims to that land and being able to live there and to be able to have their nations there. And that is the conflict in a nutshell. But Evan, how did how did this all start? So, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, there are, we, we bring this up because of events that have happened in the last couple weeks that we'll get to. But, we, you know, what what we're, we're going into the history where where does the history start on this? Yeah. So like Joe was saying, there is this place called Palestine and the people who have historically lived there are known as Palestinians. But at some point, and we'll get to this eventually, a new state, internationally recognized state of Israel, was created. And, I, you know, we could go back and forth forever, but I'm going to peg the beginning of this discussion in the idea that created the Israeli state, and that's known as Zionism. Zionism is the belief that Jewish people need an independent state so that they can be safe and secure. Because for a long time, almost the entirety of human history, Jewish people around the globe have been persecuted within whatever nation they do end up in. And so much violence has historically been enacted against Jewish people, so much persecution, that eventually some theorists began to believe that the only way that you could ever really have Jewish safety within the world is if there was a place that would be only for the Jews and really no nobody else to prevent there from being anti-Semitism, at least within the borders of one state. And one of the most important theorists of Zionism was a man named Theodore Herzl. And in 1897, he and other thought leaders held what was known as the First Zionist Congress, where people from around the region got together, and Europeans as well, um, and talked about the goals of creating a Jewish homeland that would be an internationally recognized sovereign state, and to do so in the Holy Land around Jerusalem, that city and, and all of that territory. And at the time, you can definitely see a logic to it, because up to that point in history, there had never really been a point where Jewish people had been safe. And so just uh, the, the idea of Zionism is born of the desire to make people safe. And I understand that aim and it seems like a noble aim. The way that this leads to conflict is that where can you build a new state without having to evict people who are currently living there? And that has become the crux of the most intractable dispute currently going on. Perhaps yeah. in world history. Yeah. So so to to kind of express, go through a lot of the early days of the history of this, Zionism is an idea, you know, it gains some traction, but it's not 
you know, the most widely held belief, even within the Jewish community, from my mm-hmm. understanding, you know, it's kind of, you know, there there was um, during the civil rights movement in the United States, there was a similar tract of people who believed that African-Americans needed to go and create their own state somewhere um, to move where that they could be free from all of this. And that was not a very widely held view. Um, and has not really come to fruition, but that's an idea that existed um, that was kind of a parallel thinking. So Zionism comes about, you know, it's an idea that's out there. And after World War I, um, just uh, kind of by how things happen, <laughs> um, Britain finds itself in control of Palestine, you know, how the Ottoman Empire was divvied up after World War One. Uh, so Britain ended up controlling Palestine. And, you know, there was some purchase in the idea of Zionism. So they actually started allowing a good number of Jewish people to start moving into Palestine. Um, and these people were mostly Zionists who believed in the idea of the Jewish state. And, you know, they moved there. They would claim their territories and all that stuff. And, you know, just kind of over time, things got, you know, they started building and started building. You know, there would be more Jewish people. There would sometimes be conflicts with the local Arab authorities. Um, the But then it was also, like, still controlled by Britain. And Britain didn't really want to mediate in those um, issues, you know, they didn't have a ton of interest. Yeah, so it was the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which expressed British support for a Jewish state and a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But again, like Joe was saying, they didn't really want to deal with the messy specifics of it. But in 1918, the League of Nations issued a mandate for Palestine, which, uh, again, allowed for more Jewish immigration to the region. And so from the period of about 1920 to 1948, that's th- that area became known as Mandatory Palestine. Um, because it was mandated by the League of Nations that Jewish settlement begin in the area and Mm -hmm. uh, lots of problems that would only keep getting worse. Yeah. So so what what really changed the game? What how how did this all um, start ramping up from there? Because, you know, a good amount of Jewish people moving into Palestine, um, that that is one thing. But then what happened Next was World War II and the Holocaust. Yes. And this is like the Holocaust is as much a part of Israel's history as it is like Europe's history. Mm-hmm. Because what 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 does the Holocaust do? So historically, we, we had mentioned that Zionism did not have a huge hold like it wasn't broadly um, supported within the Jewish population of the world. And partly because of that, at least from what my understanding has been, is that there was an understanding by a, a, a good amount of the Jewish population of the world that yes, people will be bad to us. Yes, people will be anti Semitic to us. But it's mostly like controllable or tolerable. 
and any way of like trying to um, you know make a deal out of it will often cause more problems than it would be solving. But that changes with the Holocaust because it comes, you know, instead of just some harmless or just some anti-Semitism that, you know, kind of just makes life shitty, but, you know, is generally tolerable. This was the mass extermination of six million Jewish people in Europe. Yeah, there, there was no longer a credible leg to stand on to believe that anti-Semitism's bark was worse than its bite because, like Joe said, and I'm sure almost all of you already know, the extermination of six million of your people is just a completely radicalizing event. Yeah. Um, You know, any sort of violence is radicalizing and a, a, a systemic violence to in an attempt to exterminate your people that that will radicalize those who are left so the the jewish people of europe and a fair number around the world who were left after that there there became a pressing that you know a lot more people were going to buy into the idea of a zionist state the idea of israel and after World War II ended, a lot of Jewish people moved to Israel. So much so that, like, you know, there had been official caps on how many people could move. But it was a situation akin to, um, you know, refugee crises where, like, boats full of Jewish people would be trying to land on the shores of Israel or, or of Palestine and like, you know, uh, British blockades would block them or, you know, th there would be people trying to get there just any way that they could, because that was the belief that they would be able to form a better life there away from the persecution that had existed elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. um so so um evan you're better on the exact specifics of these things so what <laughs> happened in 1948 yeah so well to to jump just ahead to or behind rather to 1947 uh to respond to the calls from the jewish world to create a jewish homeland the united nations in 1947 released the un partition plan for palestine it was a proposal to divide up some of that area around jerusalem and create an israeli state and a palestinian state and in the Arab world, this is known as Al-Nakba, or the, the Great Catastrophe, because, again, remember, the, we're fresh off the Holocaust, and so we have an international desire to keep Jewish people safe, but for the people who are already in the area of Palestine, all of a sudden they're being told, get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. And so... Um, or if not, not to get the fuck out that you'll at the very least be controlled by a Jewish state. Yeah, your autonomy you are, will be gone. Yeah. 
Yeah. And your property rights will be gone. That's another huge sticking point. Um, but anyway, so the proto-Israeli leaders liked the UN partition plan for Palestine and they agreed agreed to it. But all of the Arab leaders within the region rejected it. And so they just went to war to defend their land rather than agree to voluntarily give up some of the land. But unfortunately for the Palestinians, they were completely militarily outmatched with support from the United States and Britain and vastly superior training. The Israeli forces roundly defeated the Arab forces from Egypt and other surrounding nations. And between the 1947 civil war within mandatory Palestine and the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, the Arab and Palestinian forces in the region were defeated and Israel had won its national sovereignty. Israel calls it their war of independence. Um, so for Palestinians in the area, they kind of... Some of them stayed and were just under Israeli control. Some of them were leaked into surrounding nations, and some of them ended up in areas known known as the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which are still important geographical locations in this struggle to this day. But that's that's basically the crux of it. The UN said, we're going to create Palestine, or we're going to create Israel, rather, and the indigenous Arabs said no, but then they lost the war to defend their territory and Israel, as we know it, was born. Yeah. And also, I, I believe it was this war where Israel actually won, uh, you know, fought and captured a whole lot more territory than is the Israel and Palestine of today. Um, they actually captured some of Egypt, I believe, and some of what we would now call Jordan. Um, and, and they, yeah, they, they won that war decisively in order to form the state of Israel, um, to the chagrin. I mean, I don't know if chagrin is the right word to, but like to the detriment of native Palestinians and Arab, uh, peoples in the area mm -hmm. who had been living there. That was their land. And then, um, in order to create the Jewish state, they had to give up their land. Um, so from there, it, I mean, you got something? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say what's really important, though, is that even though Israel had more or less won its independence in that war, the relations between Israel and its surrounding Arab nations and communities never really normalized. They never had sort of a sit down to say, okay, we accept your right to exist, Israel, and now we can move forward. They always sort of held this feeling that they had been wronged and that they could not have normal relations with Israel, which makes sense. Right. And for a long time, the Palestinian people or I mean, what we'll find throughout the rest of the history is that who Palestine, who Palestine is as far as a government or as an organization has been on pretty shaky ground like the entire time <laughs> since mm -hmm. then, um, because Israel has been just such a dominant force 
that it's been hard to um, keep like coalitional governments together or um, also there's been terrorist groups who have taken control of parts of Palestine as the kind of de facto government. And, you know, they for a good long while, they didn't actually ever recognize Israel as a valid state. But then eventually they did because it was like, well, <laughs> um, you know, it didn't seem like it was going to be going away. So they saw the state as valid and tried to bargain from there. But they're, they're, it, in between, you know, the establishment of Israel and now there have been so many wars mm-hmm. and so many bits of violence like. I don't know, Evan, if you have like a roundup of all of them, but you know, there I want to I want to talk about a critical one. Let's go for it. Yeah, I want to talk about the Six Day War of 1967. So remember how I said that relations never normalized between Israel and the other nations, and so after sort of the Arab-Israeli War, Egypt still maintained control of some land that led to an important port and they blocked Uh, Israeli access to the port. Yeah. This was the war that I talked about where the Israel got a whole bunch of land. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This, that's what this is coming up. Um, so Israel decided that the blockade by Egypt was a prelude for war. How legitimate that is, I guess is up to each of your own determination, but Israel declared war. And again, this Israeli military, they're, they're well-trained, they're well-equipped. And so they smashed Egypt and Jordan. And yeah, like Joe said, they won some extra territory. It really shifted boundaries around and caused a lot of, population movement within the West Bank and Gaza and also in the Golan Heights. And this is really the time in 1967 where nations like the United States, or I guess the United States has always been pretty friendly with Israel, but other nations after the 1967 uh, Six-Day War decided okay, Israel, they're they're legit. They're going to be here on the national stage or the international stage. So let's 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 align with them let's try to work with them and normalize relations more than we had after uh al-nakba war of independence whichever side you fall on and there was like i said a big reshifting of population so arabs were fleeing to different parts of the region Uh, a lot of jews who had been living in different nations were expelled back to israel uh, sort of to say, well, if 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 that's the the Jewish homeland, you you'd better be there, and that was sort of the big turning point in how Israel was perceived internationally. And like Joe said, there are so many additional armed conflicts from the '40s through the 2000s that that we could talk about. But I think the Six Day War is the real yeah. critical one. Yeah, and. And I think there's some like today why the United States is an ally of Israel, like we, you know, uh, to an uh, someone not aware of the history. It's kind of like, why? Why is this? And the reason why 
the United States became an ally of Israel was really a product of the Cold War. Um, It was seen during the Cold War that most of the Arab states that were dictatorships were more likely to align or more sympathetic to the Soviet cause than the United States cause. And the United States saw an opportunity in Israel because it was a democracy and it was a capitalist nation that they could become an ally with them and have a an ally in the Middle East region, which also today we are like skeptical of why, you know, the United States is involved in the Middle East to begin with. And I guess the lessons really hadn't been learned yet, but there was this idea that the United States kind of took upon itself to be the kind of guarantor of uh, peace in the Middle East, a project that has not worked out and has not (laughs) brokered peace and has instead caused a lot of pain. But there was, you know, there was also a lot of pain going on to begin with. I mean, not to say it's all just been a wash, but like, so having an ally in the region was very important, you know, to have a base of operations and have somewhere to go from in order to do these other peacekeeping operations. Yeah, the altruistic Um, theory is peacekeeping, pro-democracy. I think that what you said about uh, the Cold War containment domino theory, have an ally in the region, is absolutely spot on as well. And then, of course, you know, um, it seems almost like a cliche to say now, but the U.S. needs an ally in the Middle East to protect their interests in oil fields in the region. Which was which was way more pronounced then. Yes. Um, and the United States was not energy independent and depended heavily on oil supplies from the Middle East to operate as a country. And just sort of overlooking the Israeli treatment of Palestinians was much more monetarily efficient than actually occupying a nation militarily. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's... Like from this point, it's almost like what what do you specifically talk about? Because like there, you know, from let's say where we're leaving off in the 1940s, 1950s, 60s to now in like the 2010s, there were three intifadas, which were essentially just it it was a war um if i remember the the it translates something to like a crusade or i don't know war against the state of israel and um lots of uprisings and and like the thing is is that one if it would there was also we believe in the idea of the Jewish state and eventually Palestine agreed to the idea that is the idea of Israel is valid and that they recognized Israel as a state. But then it wasn't just kind of left at that. You know, Israel had taken all that territory and you know, this is one of those things where Israel will use as a 
bargain is, and, and it's true, they did end up giving land back to Palestine, um, you know, giving it back to uh, for some levels of autonomy over themselves. But then there kept being conflict. And what ended up happening was that Israel um, in the West Bank in particular, which is the eastern part of the country, which is kind of confusing, but it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. You know, Israel started settling what are called settlements. And they would just be these little enclaves. You know, if you look at pictures of them, they almost look like a a suburban development, just like in the middle of a desert where they would send Jewish people to go and live in order to make claims to territory with the ultimate goal of trying to, you know, take as much as this land as possible at like a bit by bit basis. And over the years, that's been quite controversial because they're just like taking land of, out of Palestine. But then also they they will guard these settlements with, you know, basically the full force of the Israeli army. And that can end up being ended up in some lopsided conflicts where, you know, like you'll hear about a story where like some kids go and throw some rocks against a fence and they end up getting shot by Israeli forces mm-hmm. and it, it, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing. And it, and, um, it's just, it, the fighting, like we talked about the origins, but the reason why any one side is fighting Why they're fighting is because of the past injustices and people will try and tally up a tit for tat over the course of 50 years of grievances. And at this point, if you do, if you add up the tit for tat, it's like nobody really comes out clearly ahead. Both sides have reasons to be aggrieved. Um which I believe is is part of also what makes this tough is that both sides have legitimate claims to the land that is held. And over time, both sides have had legitimate claims that violence has been done upon them seemingly unfairly. Yeah, so I, I see what you, where you're coming from. And I definitely agree with a lot of i'm not trying to i'm trying to get get a lead up a lead up yeah okay go ahead no i just uh i'm saying that it seems like the more and more that i've been reading about this it it is a little bit clear to me who's coming out ahead because it seems like especially recently the balance of violence has been really skewed in the direction of israelis killing innocent palestinians palestinian civilians but I'm sure we can talk about the more recent updates when it's time. Right. But, like, it's weird because I don't think, like, what, Evan, while you'll say that, and this is something that I share a belief in, is that if we do, you know, 
how things are kind of going right now, it definitely seems like Israel is coming out and doing demonstrable harm to Palestine. But it's also weird because this is a war where both sides have active acted negatively and in ways that we would not believe as or as seen as from outsiders as behaving um in a in a good manner sure it's, yeah and it, I, it, I i'm trying to I, I i think the thing i want to express is that coming out in this and saying that maybe one side is being hurt more than the other is not coming out and saying that we endorse everything that they have done. Yes, good point. Because, yeah, it feels like what really we have right now is an apartheid state where Palestinians in the region do not have freedom and they do not have democratic representation and they do not have the right to autonomy. And that is really what I feel. I feel like Israel is in the wrong. But I also understand that, like, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Hamas is also killing Israeli civilians and Israeli children. And so, yes, to say that um, I believe that there should be a global intervention on behalf of Palestine is not to justify every associated Palestinian group. Yes, it is not... And at like, this is not a war, like, you know, we, we talk about how, um, this idea that a lot of people see the history as apolitical and they're like good guys and bad guys, you know, world war two, you know, like, you know, we justify our side as the Americans because of course the, the Germans and the Axis powers were so evil they were like getting up to some shit that we kind of all agree was pretty reprehensible. And those nations that were, you know, of the axis are all like, yeah, it was some bad shit. <laughs> um, you know, they acknowledged it, but it becomes tough when, and like, I mean, Evan, I mean, I think I I'll, I'll say this for me and this is probably the same for you. What happens in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict doesn't have a whole lot of effect on us. Yeah. Like, it's it's another country way across the world of two groups of people. And on the humanitarian front, yes, we should care um, what's happening here. And there are also other types of conflict throughout the world that are happening like this. Um, you know, there was some pretty grotesque stuff that was happening in Myanmar that does not often, you know, elicit the same. You know, we didn't do a special episode about that. Yemen um, is pretty destroyed right now. You know, there there are some pretty bad ethnic conflicts going on in Chad right now. Um, and... All I know is that there are some pretty bad things going on in Chad right now, and I know nothing of the history of it. Like, for some reason, you know, because of the allyship the United States has had with Israel and our perceived 
role and duty to try and ensure peace in the Middle East, this has been elevated to something in American politics. And, and, and you know, it hasn't always been this kind of polarized thing. Like, still most of Democrats support Israel, but that is not as much the case. It used to be, like, even 10 years ago that support for Israel was a completely bipartisan affair and you could almost not think of being critical of Israel mm-hmm. because because there's this association that is really pretty unfair that being anti-Zionist or having critiques of Israel is somehow anti-Semitic when that's really not the case if Israel is doing things that are just objectionable as a nation, right. as a state. Right. Um, yeah. So you get into this difficult um, scenario with it, but but it's come along. And, you know, I read this very interesting um, piece about why there has been a shift within the country of support for Israel. And part of it is um, two big players, um, the you know one domestic and one abroad, one being Donald Trump and the other being Benjamin Netanyahu, or you'll hear sometimes as referred to as Bibi Netanyahu. And, and I believe that's his, his actual name and Benjamin is like the English name. I'm not exactly 100% sure. I've never quite gotten to the bottom of that. But but why why are things the way they are? Well, so it, there have been rounds and rounds and rounds of different negotiations and accords and meetings between Israel and Palestine. Yes, to, I want to interject here to talk about one important one, which mm-hmm. was the Camp David summit in 2000, where on his way out the door, Bill Clinton tried to do a Hail Mary and get some sort of peace negotiations. And so he called Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak and Palestinian Authority Chairman Yasser Arafat and sat him down. But the the three parties could not reach an agreement and left with with nothing in terms of a peace deal because there are just some things that are so intractable you know, what? where should the territories be drawn if we want to do a two-state solution? What happens to Jerusalem? Because that is such a holy city for Muslims and Jews alike, can, can that city be divided or not? Israel does not want to have half of Jerusalem be out of their control. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what about property rights and rights of return? What type of security monitoring would need to go on? There's there's just so many huge problems that the two sides cannot agree on. Although it's interesting because from the Camp David summit, basically both sides walked away saying, oh, the other guy wouldn't deal with me. And, you know, nothing really got done. So thank you for yeah. allowing me that digression. But c- yeah. continue. No, it's, a, it's an important digression. Yeah. Um, so... From what my understanding of the politics of how that was playing out in Israel was that the push for these different types of peace settlements really came from the left wing of Israeli politics. And they had kind of spent all of their political capital 
going and staked it all basically on these peace talks. Um, and I and I believe there were also some that happened during George Bush's term, uh, George Bush Jr. Um, and they pan, you know, they they didn't come to any sort of lasting deal or compromise or any sort of finality. And I mean, there is so much to talk about. But, you know, from what I've understood is that just like the question of what to do with Jerusalem is like the thorniest bit of it all because it is the holy city uh you know uh, uh you know like the holy city of the jewish faith and then a very major holy city of the islamic faith and it so it's quite thorny about what do you do about that i mean there were some ideas that Jerusalem would just be like under the control of the UN, but both sides were like, nah, we want control of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. To make it an international city, not controlled by any nation, but right. Right. Yeah. No, n- nobody really likes that proposal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the Israeli left had kind of banked all of their political capital or stakes on these peace talks. And when they didn't work out, they um they didn't they lost a lot of popular support and what ended up happening was the rise of the right wing in Israel who was much stricter zionist and much hardlining than had been before a lot less amenable to the palestinian cause and a lot less amenable to peace Mm-hmm. And that what ended up happening was the election of Benjamin Netanyahu, the current prime minister of Israel. And Netanyahu has been he has been a force in Israel. He's been prime minister for something like 10 years or maybe a little bit more. Um, he's been the prime minister essentially the entire time I've been aware of the situation in my life. Yeah. Same. And yeah. So, and what has he done? Um, again, in this, this Fox article, you know, in the United States support for Israel had been bipartisan, but Benjamin Netanyahu and Obama did not see eye to eye like whatsoever. And they were pretty contemptuous of each other. And because of that, there ended up being this more sourment on the side of the American left on support for issues, uh, you know, support for Israel. Because, like, things happened like, um, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, like, lobbied hard against the Iran nuclear deal, saying that it was giving... Iran, a nuclear bomb. And Iran has been one of the more vocal and, you know, hard power enemies of Israel in the region. Like, yeah, yeah, that is important to note. Like Iran, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, people there will like say death to America and they also want death to Israel as well. Um, They're pretty, pretty extreme about it. 
and you know Netanyahu rightly or wrongly saw our involvement in the Iran deal as like trying to like speed up giving Iran a bomb, a nuclear bomb for Israel to use or to use against Israel. You know, it it wasn't it didn't at least for me someone who understands what the Iran deal was, it didn't seem effectual or you know clear as an argument but that's at least what he was saying and at one point Netanyahu came to the United States and uh, addressed a joint session of Congress to try and dissuade them from signing the Iran deal and never even saw Obama which is so that is like that's a I don't big believe, snub, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's ever happened where a foreign leader came to address a joint session of Congress and did not meet with the president of the United States. Like that and, and Netanyahu, I mean, really got in into the partisan politics of the United States and pull you know, had a hand in polarizing the issue on his end. And then also Donald Trump came along and he polarized even further on this. I mean, I mean, even if he didn't do a whole lot, you know, just him generally supporting it. And well, he did, though, because didn't he move the embassy back to Jerusalem? I wanted to say, even if he hadn't done things, just him generally supporting Israel and then also the American left basically just coming to revile anything Trump had his hands on would have still been soured on it because he, you know, is basically how could we take up a position that this man that we, you know, disagree on so much supports. But then also, I mean, he really did. I mean, he moved the um, Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv, which is kind of like the official capital of Israel to Jerusalem as if a it, it signals to the world that we believe that the Jewish capital or the Israeli capital is rightfully Jerusalem. Yeah, that Jerusalem rightfully that, belongs to Israel. Mm-hmm, that that the U.S. supports the idea that Israel has dominion over Jerusalem, and by extension, really the broader Holy Land. Yeah. So that gets us to where we are today. <laughs> I mean, and and it's interesting that. You know, as we're talking, a ceasefire has actually, well, not as we've been talking, but like since we decided to do this episode, the mm-hmm. the conflict has started and there has since been a ceasefire. But knowing about this, what's been going on is I, I believe it's still important to you all who are listening. Yes. And um, the so. ceasefire is really more tenuous than we would like. And I, we, we're definitely going to talk about that. Uh, eventually, but uh, Joe, do, do you want to do you want to tell him what sort of kicked this all off? Or, or uh... I think you might be a little bit better. Or if <laughs> you, right. if you want, no, me I do. To, I've got, I I've got it. I, no, I, okay. I, I'm I'm totally comfortable. Um, basically, the the current flare up began when the Israeli military began trying to evict several Palestinian landowners in a place called Sheikh Jarrah. So remember, Israel does not believe in 
Palestinian autonomy, and Israel does not recognize any Palestinian property rights. And as Joe mentioned earlier, Israel will just kind of send out settlements to different regions and not care about who previously owned that land or who was living there. And so in the Israeli minds, they control the land. And if they say, get off, you get off or, you know, violence will happen. So these families in Sheikh Jarrah have been living there since the 1950s. I mean, they have deep roots. They have, you know, the property records to prove that they own the land, but Israel doesn't recognize it. And so because of this latest aggression, the Palestinians have mounted huge counter protests and, you know, the more militant arms of the resistance have have taken up arms. Well, and it wasn't also yeah. it wasn't just that as well. Like there this everything was happening it it was like a perfect storm because also during this event Rama you know it's the month of Ramadan. Um the sacred, you know, it, it's almost analogous to Lent in like uh you know the Christian faiths where Ramadan is this holy month, you know, uh Muslim people are fasting and, you know, participating in religious activities. And one thing that Israel had done was they shut down the gate to Damascus, or I believe, I think there's, I believe there's some market that's very historic in Jerusalem and Israel had shut this down during Ramadan, where this was a very popular spot for Muslim people to go and break their fast at night and generally hang out and, you know, enjoy in Ramadan activities. And Israel, you know, the Jerusalem police department had shut down that market, you know, and it was seen as also, it was seen as, you know, just trying to stick it to Muslim people. Um, I had not heard about this, but that is clearly important. And then also there's even a third thing where there has been um, uh, there is a holiday in Israel called Jerusalem Day where they celebrate the capture of Jerusalem by the Israeli forces, essentially. And it is celebrated as a holiday and there is a. Um, there is a parade that historically happens and part of the parade route was to go through the Damascus gate, which had been shut down for, you know, to Muslim people through Ramadan, but it was seemingly going to go through there as an Israeli event, even though it had been shut down. Mm -hmm. So it was seen as this, just flagrant flaunting of privileges. I mean, this is why it was seen as, you know, just trying to stick it to, um, you know, Muslim people instead of, you know, I, I forget there, there was like some security concerns, you know, trying to prevent a powder cake from happening. And through it was just a bungling that created an even bigger powder keg. So the eviction of, Palestinians uh, living in their historic homes in Jerusalem, the eviction of, or the, um, 
the closing of the market that Muslim people historically um, would spend their time at during Ramadan was closed and a pretty much nationalist parade was set to go through the market that was closed, uh, an Israeli nationalist parade. And this, this is generally what caused the issues. Yeah. There, there seems to have been a flare up of, of Israeli posturing in ways that were designed to be antagonistic. And it kind of came to a head on May 7th at the Al-Aqsa Mosque campaign uh, compound where um, Israeli forces essentially went and began roughing up uh, demonstrators who were attempting to demonstrate their proud, their, their pride in their own Islamic faith. And the, uh, the organization Hamas issued an ultimatum saying, you know, like, knock it off or we will launch an attack. And so Hamas launched a rocket towards Jerusalem. They, they weren't really well coordinated or well organized. And so they, they did, though, commit an act of aggression, but nobody was killed. Um, and so in the name of self-defense, Israel responded with much better targeted munitions and killed Palestinian civilians, including several children. And so there's just been sort of a back and forth of launching attacks. Um, Israel knocked down a building which had regional offices for Al Jazeera and the Associated Press within Palestinian territory. And so there's been... They said this is, you know, the most bloody open conflict between Israel and Palestine for decades. And again, based on what I'm seeing, it seems like the Palestinians are getting the worst end of it. And what what makes me really upset is that Israel doesn't appear to be to be exhibiting any care for the lives of civilians in the region. Not that, you know, Hamas is either and fuck them and all that, but Israel is supposed to be a nation state, right? They're supposed to be responsible and care about human rights. And they're just not. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what makes, I mean, so there had been to all the things that had happened, there had been protests happening. I, I mean, largely by and far peaceful protests happening in Jerusalem um, by Palestinians. But, what ended up happening, Hamas is a terrorist group. Like, there, there is no really bones about it. They control Gaza. Um, you know, the Palestine, you know, there's the West Bank and Gaza. Hamas controls Gaza. And the West Bank, I mean, it's, it's almost hardly even its own territory anymore with how much it's been settled. And so... Hamas is a terrorist organization and nobody had been asking for an attack on Israel and Hamas, you know, since they're, that's kind of their bread and butter is the militarization of the conflict. They took a military action, you know, they took a violent action 
And that that is not to be, you know, that's not disputed. Yeah. And that's not great. But then also it's just weird how it is. You know, like we um you know, there there are countries out there like I I again going back to like Iran, you know, Iran, you know, it was almost like um like you know, in the United States, we said the Pledge of Allegiance and in Iran, they say death to America, you know, and it, it f- there are some people inside the United States who would take that threat very, very seriously that they were going to come and harm us. And then there's the view that I had and some other people had that it was like this almost sh- it, this is like posturing. Like the threat of, you know, the force of the United States is so much greater than the force of Iran that it's like, well, they may use this very heavy rhetoric, but what are they going to do? And it almost feels like that with Israel and Palestine, where Israel is just overwhelmingly more powerful than the Palestinians. And they, I mean, if Israel wanted, they would not have the um, support of the international community, but they could probably, I mean, they would be able to overtake the Palestinian territories mm-hmm. for for their own if they wanted to, but they don't. But, but it just seems like like I will not, you know, there, there's this thing that people will say a lot and it's, it's just kind of, it's almost like window dressing. It's people will say Israel has the right to defend itself. And I definitely believe that's the case. Like, I mean, I mean, but it's almost such like a banal statement. Like you might as well also say Israel has the right to collect taxes. Like (laughs) it's, it's, like that's the basic. <laughs> I mean, that's one of no, the I things like this. a sovereign ex- state has a yeah. right to. Let's extend this analogy. Israel has the right to collect taxes, but they don't have the right to send authorities into someone's home without due process and seize all of their shit. Right. Right. So just like we say, Israel has a right to defend itself. That doesn't mean that Israel has the right to rocket launch Palestinian children. That's not defense. That's not the same thing. Right. And and it's another way it's weird is that, yes, um, Hamas will launch missiles into Israel, but Hamas doesn't have like modern equipment to -hmm. say. I mean, they are still bombs strapped to rockets and they can still kill people and and they have killed people and they do. But then also, like, Israel has what's called the Iron Dome, which is a missile defense system. And, you know, if you there are lots of videos out online and, you know, it's kind of actually breathtaking how, like, weirdly beautiful it is. But it is still, you know, they can fight against most of the um, missiles that come into their country, you know. 
and they have these defenses against them. It you know it it feels like some of these conflicts are almost just like polarization events where like Hamas knows that they can launch some missiles into Israel. It's not really going to kill a whole lot of people, but it is. And that is seen as a threat by Israel and it's trying to goad Israel into a more extreme response to Hamas's terror and in order to get like an overreaction and get like, I don't know, maybe sympathy for Hamas or validity within the Gaza Strip or in, you know, the West Bank, maybe. But it just it just feels like, I don't know, <laughs> like it's almost like a boxing match. You know, both, you know, both are going to come out at the end of it. Maybe one will win, but, you know, they're they're still going to do another fight on Wednesday. You know, it, it's just odd how it's it's almost like it's all just kind of for show, but it has real humanitarian consequences um, because, yes, the Jewish people of Israel, well, and just the people of Israel, because not everyone who lives in Israel is Jewish, um, the people of Israel like feel the fear of being bombed like I don't I don't have that fear in my life Mm -hmm. so I don't I don't claim to minimize their fear of um being bombed but then also in Gaza they also have the fear of being bombed I mean maybe I mean I don't Israel wouldn't I don't believe would strike first with a missile threat but, you know, there's enough aggression from Israeli um, military and Gaza is just it just feel it just seems like it would be a wretched place to live right now mm-hmm. where supplies are short. Opportunity is lacking. I think there's something like 40 percent unemployment in Gaza. Wow. Like it's just a nearly unlivable place because of the conditions because of well one both i i mean hamas is also to blame because they are the kind of de facto government but any money and resources that they get gets plowed into their terrorist and military tactics which does not put you know, food onto people's plates and mm-hmm. creates economic development or infrastructure or anything like that. But then also like Israel just kind of blockading it and I mean, having control over the region and um, just kind of making the, the, the area just this othering. Um, and it's just, Again, like a point that we have made is that we believe both sides have been doing bad things, but at least from the position that Israel is in and their comfort, it definitely feels like they are more so in the wrong and if there is anything a change of the morality of this it would have to come from their end 
Yes. At least as we see it. And Bernie Sanders is even saying as much. So if you if you think that all criticism of Israel is inherently anti-Semitic, good luck explaining that to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Who is himself Jewish, for the record. (laughs) I'll I'll add on Matthew Iglesias, who is critical of Israel and also Jewish. Um, You know, there are people in the United States who have that position and will often be, you know, that they're coming from their ivory tower of not having to be involved in this. And, you know, they don't have the threat of, you know, all the anti-Semitism and, you know, all that stuff. But it's it like like we said, it's this is a difficult thing, because if you talk about one side being worse than the other, there's almost an implication that the thing that they're worse than is not bad at all. Whereas in this conflict, it has gone on so long that both sides have sets of rightful grievances and how they act upon them is where we, you know, see who's more in the right or in the wrong. But man, you know, just if I think back, like this is taking this in a different direction, like thinking to what we know about like trauma and abuse and like violence and how that affects people. Holy shit, man. Like that whole region is just traumatized Mm -hmm. and they, you know, all the people must be on edge and just people, you know, people who are subjected to violence are more likely to try and go to violence to solve their problems. Like, mm-hmm. like this is the vicious cycle of abuse. And it, it's almost like just at some point there just needs to be one side who just, you know, turns the other cheek and, you know, abstains from the conflict. But that's a very tough thing to do, especially with, as, you know how the politics are going in Israel and how the politics are going in Palestine. Yeah, and again, because to be able to abstain from the conflict, you would have to be willing to walk away from certain things that you believe are rightly yours, such as territory or rights of return or agreements about security monitoring. And so <laughs> no, nobody's willing to do that. Um, so yeah, it just seems really intractable and hopefully everyone has a better understanding of why um but joe do you want to chat about this ceasefire that is brand new hot off the presses i don't know a whole lot about it actually so i just know that it has happened yeah basically biden has been pushing netanyahu pretty hard to stop the violence to reach some sort of accord and on friday we're recording this on a saturday on friday they reached a ceasefire agreement and on that same friday israel is already violating the spirit of the ceasefire agreement um there was a group of worshipers outside of a mosque and the israeli forces decided that they needed to disperse and began attacking the crowd with stun grenades and rubber bullets 
Journalists were on hand to witness the scene from CNN, among other outlets. Um, the Israeli forces decided that the credentials that were shown were fake. They unilaterally decided that and turned the violence onto journalists. So Israeli forces are attacking journalists now. And I really, I mean, we'll see how this reads on Monday when this episode is actually published, but I'm skeptical that we are actually going to see this ceasefire take hold because Israel is still acting aggressively, even to people who are not associated with their enemies in any way, shape, or form. Yep. <laughs> That's just a yep. 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 And I, I, I'm really coming to more of the position of, I don't know what the role of the United States is. Um, I think this gets big to kind of bigger foreign policy questions of the the scope of the U.S. military. Like we in the past, there have been instances where the United States has been able to effectively, um you know, f effectively change things for humanitarian good. I mean, going back to World War II is like one thing, but then also like there were a lot of blunders, but then also like the U.S. actions and bombing campaign in Bosnia to, you know, stop a genocide was also effective. Um, And there and, and we are the the biggest power in the world with the most resources with an expansive military and it really comes to the question of like there's unlimited human suffering and struggle where do we choose to focus our resources and and where do we have clear rights to claim to be the victor, you know, the arbiter of these conflicts? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, we generally would like to think that an ethnic cleansing is a place where we believe that, you know, that would be a place where United States government and military would be to step in. But like we mentioned before there there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and a lot of bad stuff and it, i don't know like hell even like you know we went to war in world war ii and we ended up fighting against the people who were doing the ethnic cleansing but it wasn't fully well known to this world the scope of that ethnic cleansing and we didn't get into the war because of that that's true and like we're trying to live in this post World War II world where, um, you know, the military and the United States foreign policy is focused on human rights. And it's a real question of what can we actually do about that? Like, I don't I, I don't believe in an isolationist United States. But I also don't know that we are capable of 
being the world police and stopping and mediating every injustice. Of course. And yeah, I I really resonate with what you're saying. And I think we need to take it into account as we do attempt to navigate the international landscape moving forward. But there's a couple of unique factors in this case where I think that we do have some agency and also maybe even a little bit of moral responsibility to do something here. Number one is we sell billions of dollars of arms to Israel every year. That's something that's actually huge and we haven't talked about yet. Um, You know, the United States directly supports Israeli military efforts by selling them the weapons that they use to attack innocent Palestinians. And, you know, it's, it's lucrative for us and we have all these other, you know, salutary things associated with our relationship with Israel. But at the end of the day, we do have a lot of control over what the Israeli military is able to do or not do. And then the other thing, and this is something that Noam Chomsky has talked about. That's that's how deep I went into this research, mm-hmm. Joe. I watched like the first 20 minutes of a Noam Chomsky les- lecture on Israel and Palestine from like 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so no- Noam Chomsky rightly points out that on a lot of these issues, the United States is sort of the only vote that matters, and we can vote to sanction what's going on, or we can vote to change it. And he gives the example of South Africa, where the United States was able to effectively change international policy just by their own unilateral decision. So if you recall, South Africa was an apartheid state for a long time, and the Reagan administration supported the apartheid state. They were happy with that government. They considered Mandela a terrorist and all this, yada, yada, yada. Even though the entire rest of the international community was no longer aligned with the apartheid state. It wasn't until the United States decided to condemn it that there could finally be change within South Africa. And it is kind of a similar situation going on right now. The global community really is not supportive of the way that Israel treats Palestinians. But because of the United States special relationship with with Israel, that is, nobody really feels like they can step up and take action. And Israel doesn't feel like they have to change. They feel like it's the entire rest of the international community who's in the wrong. So because of our unique power and specifically our military alliance with Israel, don't get me wrong. America should not be the world police. We've fucked up a lot of stuff trying to do that. But specifically here, I see an opening. Yeah. You know, I I just had a a somewhat different, uh, a tangential thought. You know, I feel like we've, uh, there's been this doctrine of world peace will be like achieved through um, dependent capital or codependent capitalism. Like what was the idea? You know, it, it was like in the West wing where the economist is like shaky and is asked to give the statement like, Oh, we want to trade with China so that they'll eat our hamburgers and, you know, and through trade with that, they'll become dependent on us. So, you know, the trade that we do with them, so they won't want to go to war with us. Uh-huh. That's the that's the basic idea is if you're doing enough trade with a country, you're not going to want to do with it because, you know, go to war with it because you're you don't want to harm all those economic relationships. 
But I think there's another way that it can happen where if you have all of those economic relationships and one country does something bad, it becomes a lot harder to try and press on them because you don't want to destroy those relationships. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. Yeah, do you want to like like my thought on this? Yeah. My thought on this is that you mentioned those arms deals and you know the the American arms are not made by, you know, the US federal government arms factory. They're made by private companies here in the yeah. United States. And either they're bought up by the United States and then sold to Israel or they're just you know, the United States just puts a rubber stamp and says, you can sell these arms to Israel. And, you know, that's, there will be a lot of lobbying pressure from the arms manufacturers who are quite tied into the federal government mm-hmm. to keep relationships with Israel so that they can keep their businesses booming. Like, and, and you know, some people will say this is like evil, but I mean, I, I, uh, you know, the morality of being in the arms business is an interesting one, but like, I don't think I, I it's just, it would be hard for, it's harder for the country that has a lot of economic ties with another country to call out that other country because of the economics. Like we have no issue calling out like or Russia. for the most part, yeah, Russia or North Korea, because our economies aren't dependent on them. But then we also but then we start to have this trouble with China because we have massive economic relationships mm-hmm. with them. Like we are more adversarial than we have been in the past. But the willingness to go along with it is hard because China is a big market for, you know, kind of the upscale American goods and the United States depends on a lot of the cheap labor from China for goods and that are, you know, manufactured there and sold over here for cheap. Mm-hmm. So it's it's harder to confront things like the Uyghurs, you know, the 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 ethnic cleansing of the Uyghurs going on in China because, you know, we have these economic relationships that while it is maybe keeping a peace which is maybe a higher level good than like, like maybe it's good that we have peace, but you know, it's a little bit harder to address these things as opposed to a little bit easier to address the small things, but not having peace. But I mean, at least in the Israeli context, you know, with, you know, all those weapon sales, it's hard to mitigate that relationship and, you know, use the one lever that we really have because of those deep, deep economic relationships. And I mean, those arms aren't just, you know, the money from those arms just aren't going to, you know, the fat cats at, you know, Smith and Weston and, you know, whoever else makes those arms and, you know, uh, uh, Halliburton, you know, it's it's going into the people who, you know, the pockets of the, you know, the workers at the factories who make those arms as well. You know, it's. It's tough. It's tough. So that was just, huh? I I I hadn't heard that framed that way. So maybe now y'all can think about things like that. Yeah, profit motives uh, may be a detriment to international accords as opposed to uh, a 
boon to them. So I, I, I like that. Yeah. I mean, hell, even it, I mean, if you take the unit of analysis, I mean, even further down, I mean, you're going to be a lot less critical of like the business you work for because you have mm-hmm. the, you know, the economic relationship. You're going to be a lot less critical of like your family if you're dependent on them for your income and stability. So like, yeah, if if somebody says something racist on Twitter, you can call them out. But if your boss says something racist on Twitter, you know, oh boy, can I afford to take this risk and lose my job over this? It's yeah. different calculus. Yeah, yeah. So, but to get back to the conflict in in Israel and Palestine, yeah, it's it's complex. The United States has some levers that it can push on. I mean, we provide a lot of aid to Israel, not even just the arms. And it's, um, you know, if this ends up becoming much more polarized in the United States, the, the, the aid is pretty much conditioned on a bipartisan support for Israel. And if that bipartisan support collapses, then there won't be the aid to Israel anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's, but I, I mean, uh, this is almost like cheesy to say, but you know, I, I wish for peace. I don't want any more people to die. And I wish, you know, that there could be this problem could be worked out as maximally good for each sides. But it's just, I mean, people are hardly even talking about the, the viability of a two state solution anymore. Mm-hmm. It's 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 almost seen as a foregone conclusion that Israel is just going to kind of take over eventually. Yeah. So for those who aren't necessarily aware with the verbiage, a two state solution would be an international agreement as well as an agreement with Israel and Palestine that formally recognizes Palestine as a nation with autonomy and borders and a right to defend itself. Um, and that is probably going to need to be a precondition for Palestinians to accept anything, um, as it should be. I think that the Palestinians should have a land that's their own. You know, what's, I, I, I would be surprised if there isn't a word for this already, but basically like a Zionism for Palestinians, you know, mm-hmm. a, a belief that they should have their own nation and their own ability to be secure without, constant land and military incursions from Israelis. I don't think well, that's unreasonable. But like you well, said, that it seems farther and farther from the window. Well, and it's also the fact that once you like once one of these events where there's kind of a transgression happens, it just takes one person to do it. And then everyone kind of has to live with the consequences forever. Like I have thought about, like, in the context of the United States, how we took all the land from the Native Americans. And on some level, you would think, well, you know, the just thing would be to give it all back. But what about the generations of people who have lived on those lands who were not active in the you know, the the running off of Native Americans from their land, but have also lived on that land gener- for many generations as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the time accumulation at some point 
you really do have to let it go, which is unfortunate and complicates things for the people who had their stuff stolen long ago. Yeah, so so as you know, time goes on, the Palestinian claim to the lands within Israel become less poignant as time goes on and the legitimate land claims of the Israelis who live there become stronger and it's tough. Yeah. It sounds harsh, but that that's the reality of it. There is sort of like a, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law type of thing. Like if, if I uh, jump in your car and steal it, you know, that's pretty easy to say that my claims of having that car for an hour are not legitimate. But if my great-great-grandfather killed someone and moved on to his land, and now we've raised five generations of Kellys on that plot of land, you know, how how do you resolve that? It's it's not or Or fuck clear. it, even, you know, it's easy to, you know, if it would have been your family living on that same land, you know... Th- there, it's almost easier to say that, you know, you're still kind of responsible. But I mean, let's say you have one guy drive the Native Americans off the land, ha- owns that land, and then just sells it, like, not long after. Like, is the person who bought... I mean, maybe that person who bought the land initially afterwards is somewhat culpable. But what about the people, you know, the generation after that, you know, they just lived there or, mm-hmm. or the people who bought it after that, you know, we, I, you know, when I bought, I, I bought a house, I did not in any way think about the ramifications and the, uh, you know, the possible guilt that may be associated with buying land that may have at one point belonged to native Americans. I just bought I just bought my house, you know, Yeah. like <laughs> I didn't have these big complex, you know, realizations of, you know, the who who this land may belong to. Is it my right to buy it? Is it my right to live here? Because that it, on kind of a surface level, we created a society where, yes, <laughs> yes, I have the right to buy this land and just kind of live on it. Mm-hmm. So. As long as I mow the lawn adequately, which, <laughs> which, uh, I'm 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 sitting here at my desk and I have a window right out to my backyard and it is a jungle, fuck. But anyway, <laughs> bring a little levity at the end here. Uh, this is the middle. Oh fuck! So we have another future, hour and a half of content. Palestine. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yep, so, future Palestine. So do you have any more thoughts you want to wrap up on? I, I think I've gotten all my stuff out there. Yeah, so just kind of as a wrap up, I, I think it's been really interesting for me because I think the the common theme is that both sides have legitimate grievances, and I do believe that to be true. But over the course of researching this and learning more and more about it, it really feels like there is a huge power imbalance imbalance between the pain the Palestinians are able to inflict to inflict onto Israel and then the pain that Israel is able to inflict on Palestinians and it it's kind of unconscionable at this point to me yeah it's it's tough it's it's tough you want it to be better and yeah 
And, and, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, there's a lot of conflicts out in the world and it's weird that we are like all feel the need to have a position on this. Yeah. But it's, you know, it is what it is. And here we are. And hopefully you all listening, if you didn't know what was going on, maybe hopefully you have a better idea now. It's a jumping off point. It is. Hopefully, hopefully we explained it clearly enough and enough depth to understand that it is complex, but at the current pace, it does seem like at least currently Israel is a little bit more in the wrong and not negating anything, you know, again, you know, like trying not to make sure this nuance is here. We're not saying that Hamas is fully in the right. We're not saying that Israel is fully in the wrong. We're saying that in the total scope of things, it seems like the handling by Israel and how it's able to affect the Palestinian territories is way is is harsher than the relationship in the reverse. Yeah, I think that's a good place to put the bow on. Yeah. So what did you think? No, I can't. (laughs) I feel disgusted that I even did that. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for Anthony Hish for the music. I would like to thank Blake Altman for assisting me with my research this week. And also rest in peace to Paul Mooney, actor and comedian Paul Mooney passed away this week. Um, notably from Chappelle's show and bamboozled. Um, I know it's really not related to what we're talking about, but it got me and I wanted to mention it on the show. But again, thanks hey, to Blake. It's for our the show channel. and we yeah. can put things out there. Yeah. So, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been... Adequately informed.